Good morning, guys. So glad y'all are here. Hope you're enjoying your fellowship and your breakfast. It's always a joy to be with you as we open God's Word and study it together and see what God has for us in it. I invite you to open up your Bibles to uh, Numbers chapter 11. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 11. Before we dive in, um, last week, uh, I think it was late last week, Wednesday or Thursday, our church put on a, a parenting seminar. They brought in some heavy hitter speakers, you know, really great parents. Did anybody go to that in here? All the, there was 400 young parents and middle adult parents at this conference listening to how to become better parents, which is highly encouraging. I got to confess to you, though, for most of it, I felt like I was drowning in a sea of inadequacy, you know, because these experts are saying, Barton, you know, you have to do this to be a good parent. You can't do that in order to be a good parent. Whatever you do, don't let your kids do that. And I was listening to all this stuff. And I was like, well, I just failed in every single one of those things. And I was really going through my mind. It was like, how much money do I have to save for my kids to get all the counseling they're going to need later in life? That's how I was feeling through it. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, they said, now, I bet all of you feel like failures. And I was kind of raising my hand like this. And they said, don't you know that if only if you, if you're only doing these things about 50% of the time, just 50% of the time, you are actually a great parent. In fact, even the mistakes you make, if you repair them properly, your kids are going to learn more from you and your mistakes than never having made mistakes to begin with. Which, if true, my kids are going to be geniuses, right? Because I make mistakes all the time. But it got me thinking about this passage because Paul, in his uh, Corinthian correspondence, in 1 Corinthians 10, says there's a lot of things that we can learn from the Bible. In fact, we can learn a lot of things from Israel's mistakes, Moses' failures, and all the rest in their wilderness wanderings, which very much includes our passage. Now, I love this because Moses, you know, last week we saw this amazing prayer from Moses. Moses was not a perfect man. He was an extremely gifted leader and a faithful servant, but he was not a faultless saint. You know, a lot of times when we go to our heroes in the faith, like Moses or David, we just have this picture in our mind, like they're these mighty men of faith, these stalwarts, and, but that's not really the reality of it all. I mean, Moses was a guy. He was a man. And he had moments of desperation, moments of, of confusion, moments of anger. And we see that in our passage. In fact, in all of the amazing moments that Moses has with God, these incredible conversations that Moses has with God and these prayers. In fact, if you go through Numbers, if you've studied Numbers before, he has amazing conversations with God in Numbers. There's like six or seven incredible prayers. I chose this one because on the human level, it's not all that amazing. If you've read chapter 11 before, it's just kind of a normal ho-hum prayer. It's not this, this giant prayer of faith, this move mountains type of prayer of faith. But rather, it's this desperate, confused, frustrated prayer of complaint. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I relate to that more than I relate to the prayer that Moses made last week. And there's lots of things for us to learn. So when we approach this passage, as we make observations in the differences between the behavior of Moses and Israel, um, notice how Moses approaches God in his season of suffering and how he talks to God. Not only do we learn a whole lot about prayer, but we learn a whole lot about the God to whom we pray. 
So as we begin, just a couple of things about the context to help us understand what's happening here. Just a general overview. We're smack dab in the middle of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, first five books in the Bible. In Genesis, we see that God uh, creates the world, calls Abraham out of darkness, makes Abraham his guy, and promises Abraham incredible blessings of which you and I are beneficiaries as spiritual children of Abraham, as Paul tells us. In Exodus, God keeps his promises. He rescues Israel from slavery, from darkness, makes them his covenant people. In Leviticus, we see law after law, which not only distinguish Israel as being God's covenant people, but shows them how to live faithfully and fruitfully and thrive in this covenant relationship. Then we get into numbers, what we're going to be today. And still there's more laws, but really it's a history of the 40-year journey that Israel made from Mount Sinai to the land of promise. Now, in the chapter before the one which we're about to read in chapter 10, it's this high watermark. The people of God are about to embark on this great road trip from Sinai to, to the land of promise. And there's much celebration. There's much hope. But as soon as we get into chapter 11, we see the people of God begin this cycle of faithlessness in disobedience, all of which make for a very desperate and a very frustrated leader in our guy Moses. So the overall application question I want us to think about as we study this together. Brothers, how do we as Christians approach God and talk to God when life does not seem to be going the way we thought it would? When our circumstances in our own personal lives and in the community around us do not seem to be lining up with the promises that God has given us, when we are desperate, when we are in pain, sorrowful, frustrated, those moments are going to happen. For a lot of us, they're happening right now. They happen to Moses. So when those moments happen, how do you and I talk to and approach God. A better question is, how do we complain to God faithfully? Numbers 11 has a whole lot to say, so let's study it together. Starting in verse 1, hear the word of God. <clears throat> and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance, like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and grounded it in hand mills and, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive of all these people? Did I give them birth 
that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And if you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers of them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand with you. And I will come, come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of all the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourself for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it is better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat it. You shall eat it not just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And I have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat that they, meet, that they might eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and, and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. I'm going to break right there. It's interesting that God allows Moses to come to him as he did with all of his questions, with all of his concerns. God is gracious in that. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But it also notice, too, that Moses listened to the answers in which God had for him. God calls us to himself that we can bring everything that we have, but we have to be ready to hear the word that the Lord has for us, which, of course, Moses does here. Verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. By faith he did this. And he gathered 70 men of elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them and took some of the spirit that was on them and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm so grateful for my brothers, and I'm so grateful for your word, which you give us, uh, that, why, that we might be filled and satisfied. And we pray that you'd send your spirit down upon us, that as Pat prayed, we wouldn't just be informed, but truly transformed by your word. We can't do that. I can't do that. Only you can do that. So send your spirit down upon us and make a name for yourself in the mighty work in which you do in our hearts and in this group of men. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's three major observations I want us to make. That's not all of the observations we can take from this text, but it's all that we have time for. Uh, the first one is this. 
As God's people, when we experience seasons of sorrow and disappointment and frustration in verses 1 through 10, we must not grumble. The way in which we approach God, talk to God, talk about God, live life in seasons of disappointment, we must not grumble. That's the primary thing that we learn in verses 1 through 10. Now remember, at the end of chapter 10, as I said before, it was this great season of celebration. Moses was praising God and celebrating primarily the fact that God and his providence was watching over him and all of Israel. In chapter 10, God is with us. God delivered us. God is with us. God is providing for us. He's enabling us to to, to live. and He's caring for us. The, The one true God is loving us. And so Moses, at the end of chapter 10, he's praising God for this. And the people of God were praising the Lord too. And why wouldn't they be? The Ark of the Covenant was behind them. And the cloud of God's presence was among them as they set out on this giant road trip from Sinai to the land of promise, which was flowing with milk and honey. It's this great, beautiful scene. But then in chapter 11, at the very get-go in verse 1, not three days into this journey, they start complaining. And not just complaining, they were grumbling. Now, I know we know that grumbling is a bad thing. But brothers, grumbling, it doesn't get a whole lot of press these days. It really does. I mean, everybody grumbles. Listen to Sports Center. Watch the news. Listen carefully at work. Listen to your own hearts. Everyone grumbles. There's not a whole lot of folks that go to pastors and say, help me, I'm addicted to grumbling. There's not a whole lot of pastors that confess to their accountability partners that they struggle with grumbling either. Just listen around you. I mean, one of our national pastimes is grumbling. But what we learn from this passage What Paul and James urge us not to do as the church in the New Testament is not to grumble. And that's exactly what Israel was doing here. Now, we're going to get to why they shouldn't grumble, why we shouldn't grumble in just a moment. But I first want us to make note of why they were grumbling, because there are common reasons for God's people to grumble. They were grumbling for two reasons. In verses 1 through 3, first off, they were grumbling about life's adversities. In verse 1, it literally says that they were whining about their misfortunes, the misfortunes, those bumps and bruises that they were experiencing on the road to promise. All right, all those nicks and bruises, those those normal every day we live in a fallen world, nicks and bruises, they were complaining about those misfortunes. Now, that's crazy if you think about it, right? Because just a little while ago, they had been rescued from 400 years of hard labor slavery in Egypt. Right? And now they're complaining about just these, I mean, they're in the freedom of, of God's presence and they're going to the promised land. They know that they've been rescued. They know that God has committed himself to them. They know that God's going to provide for them. I mean, they've seen that and they know where they're headed. They're, they're headed to the land of promise that's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, this is like apples and oranges. Nothing compared these, these nicks and bruises to the pain and the suffering they were experiencing in slavery. But they had forgotten about all of that and they said, oh, we hate this. And that was convicting to me because I think sometimes as Christians, we can do that same thing when it comes to the cost of discipleship. You know, I know, I know that by faith I've been delivered from ultimate slavery. I know that. And I know that Jesus is with me. And I know that Jesus is bringing me into the true promised land with all of my brothers and sisters who are united by faith, Jesus Christ with me. Right? And I know that Jesus tells me that this life will have hardships, 
hardships following after him, the cost of discipleship. And I know that, that he tells me that his burden is light. But I hate the cost of discipleship sometimes. And I catch myself really loving the promises of the gospel, but hating the cross of the gospel. And I think we all struggle with that. That's what Israel was struggling with. They were struggling with life's adversities of being God's people. Another thing they were grumbling about, we see this in verses 4 through 10, were life's deficiencies. <laughs> These jokers were really grumbling about the menu. Right? I mean, God had provided for them miraculously manna. Manna, bread from heaven, which by all descriptions sounds delicious to me, but, but apparently these guys grew tired of the monotony. They, they grew bored of God's provision, and this is what they started doing. They, they started reminiscing about the good old days. I mean, John, do you remember back in Egypt, the fish that we had? I mean, it was free. Of course, they had, they had chains around their ankles, but they're saying, don't you remember those fish and the, and the garlic we had and the... And the other things that I've never tasted before, I mean, they, they were delicious. I mean, talk about selective memory to say something like that. They were slaves, trapped in darkness. And here they're saying, ah, God's provision isn't all that great. And we, we had a much better time back there in Egypt. Now, on the surface, it seems like they really are complaining about the monotony of God's provision. And we've been there before. You know, going on a long road trip, there's only too many Slim Jims you can eat before you grow tired of Slim Jims, right? But they're not complaining about the menu, really. What they're doing is longing for the pleasures of Egypt. They're thinking to themselves, God has done us wrong. We had it better before we knew God. And again, sometimes I think we can do that, especially when we experience adversity and suffering and sorrow in this life. We usually have two ways of approaching that unfaithfully. First off, we say, why is this happening to me? This should not be happening to me. I'm God's guy. How could he be doing this to me? Or we can look at the unbelieving world and lust after all the things they take pleasure in. My goodness, they get to enjoy that. I used to be able to enjoy that before I knew Jesus. Did I have it better back then? Was life better back then? And pretty soon we begin longing, lusting, craving after the pleasures of Egypt. That's why they were grumbling. They were grumbling about life's adversities and life's deficiencies as God's people. Now, in case we don't know why that's sinful, we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But, but the second thing I want us to know are the dangers of grumbling. And there's two dangers of grumbling presented in this text. First, we see in verse 4 and 10 that grumbling is contagious. Look at verses 4 and 5. At first, it was just the rabble that was grumbling. Now, what does rabble scholars tell us? Rabble were those who basically hitched a ride on the caravan on their uh, way out of Egypt. So it could have been Egyptians that ended up being God-fearers or people just from neighboring towns that, that hitched a ride with this Jewish caravan. That was the rabble. They were living on the outside of camp. Initially, it was just them that were grumbling. Oh, we had it so great. We had it so great back in Egypt. But look at verse 10. What happens? From verse 4 from verse 10, what happens? It was no longer just the rabble that was, that was grumbling. Who was it? Every single tent in Israel began grumbling by verse 10. Every single tent. It began with a few 
and it was left unchecked. And before you know it, the entirety of the people of God were grumbling. And that's really what caused Moses' head to spin. Because these are God's people. They, they should know better. But they're grumbling. Now, what I learned from this is, as leaders in the church, as husbands and fathers, leaders in the community, we have to remember that more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Sin left unchecked is contagious, learned behavior. Grumbling can be a learned behavior. More is caught than taught. Think about, think about all the church splits that have happened because there's been a small group of people that were grumbling, but that grumbling was never checked or challenged. And before you know it, that, that grumbling spread to every single pew. The sins that we see in our children or the grumbling that we see in our kids, it's not that our kids aren't capable of sinning on their own, but how much of it is learned behavior? Can we trace that back to the grumbling that we see in our own life? Sin is contagious when left unchecked, when left re- unrepented of. Same thing with grumbling, it's contagious. But the, but the greatest danger that we see here comes in verse 1, verse 10, verses 19 through 20, and verses 34. And this is what, it's, this is what those verses show. That grumbling invokes the anger of the Lord. It's no small thing. Look at verse 1 and verse 10. We see plainly that their grumbling invoked the anger of the Lord, even Moses' anger, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But in verses 19 to 20 and verse 34, we see that even in judgment, God handed them over to their grumbling, to that craving that they had. So much so that those who were grumbling became sick over what they were asking for, and those who initially started this problem even died. God does not take our grumbling lightly. He takes it seriously. Now, we have to understand the reason for that. This grumbling is not any ordinary complaining. It wasn't you know, how sometimes we complain, oh, goodness, another cold front's coming through. That's not what's happening here. In fact, if you look at verse 10, when it says that Moses was displeased, In the Hebrew, you know what that says? That Moses considered their grumbling evil. That as the mediator of the covenant, Moses saw what they were doing as evil. Now, why was their grumbling evil? What's the problem? What's the big deal? Here it is. The reason that it is evil is because the root of grumbling is the sin of unbelief. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Chapter 3 and verse 16 says, I'll read it for you. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's what was happening down deep. The core, the seed of their grumbling was their refusal to believe the promises of God. The rabble, they had a distorted view of the past because they had forgotten God's promises. They had an unbelief that God would not only see them but provide for their needs in the present because they had forgotten God's promises. They had a completely distorted view of who God was because they refused to believe God's promises. You can even see this in their behavior right there in verse 1. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. You know what that means? They never went to God with their issues. 
They didn't go to God. They didn't complain to God. They simply complained about God. There's a massive difference between their behavior and Moses' behavior, which we're about to see. They never went to God. They didn't complain to God. They didn't bring to God their questions and their doubts. They just complained about God. You see, you see, you see grumbling is so serious. It's so evil. It's, it could be, it's a breaking of the covenant because what grumbling says is that God is not good. God is not able. God is not enough. God hates that, considers it evil because the seed of grumbling is unbelief. That's why it's so dangerous. And so what we learn from this, brothers, is that you and I are going to experience seasons of deficiencies and seasons of adversities as God's people. We will. A lot of us are experiencing those right now. We will suffer for Christ's name's sake. In those moments, we will be tempted to grumble, but this passage pleads with us, urges with us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, learn from Israel's mistakes. Do not grumble because the seed of grumbling is what? It's unbelief. However, as God's people in such seasons of life, this passage also says that you and I can lament in faith. And that's our second main takeaway in verses 10 through 15. First off, Christians, don't grumble. When we experience these seasons of adversity, when sorrow comes into our life, don't grumble. But you can lament in faith. Verses 10 through 15. Now, what is lament? I love this layperson's version definition. It's my favorite I've read. Lament is a form of prayer that turns you to God when sorrow tempts you to run from God. Lament is a form of prayer that turns you to God when sorrow tempts you to run from God. The prayer of lament is a gift that God gives his people precisely for sorrowful moments. And to pray a prayer of lament is a great demonstration of faith for a couple of reasons. First off, a prayer of lament presupposes a covenantal relationship between God and yourself. You're not approaching God as a rebel. You're approaching God as a son. You're in a covenantal relationship with him, an intimate relationship with him. Secondly, you recognize, too, that God has given you the provision of bringing everything on your heart to him, including complaints, including those things which otherwise you'd be afraid to tremble if God didn't say you could do it. That you can bring those things to him for the purposes of being built up in trust and faith. That is the main difference that we see between Moses and Israel in chapter 11. In fact, uh, Gary Miller, the author of that book that Todd recommended all of us called Calling on the Name of the Lord, this is what he says. He says, it is clear that only Moses, not Israel, is thinking in covenantal terms here. While his prayer is certainly forthright, that's a way to word it, he bases his prayer on God's covenant promises to his people. He, Moses, not Israel, is demonstrating trust in God. Lament is this gift that God gives us for seasons of sorrow. Language he gives us that turns us towards him when sorrow tempts us to run from him. All right, and I think we see that in this text. Now, there's four basic elements for a prayer of lament that are beneficial for us to know. Four basic elements. The first one is this. We must turn to God. In these seasons of sorrow, of desperation, of frustration, of confusion and doubt, we must turn to God. If you look elsewhere in the Bible at other prayers of lament, 
This type of prayer always begins with the prayerer addressing the covenant name of God. So two, two quick examples. Psalm 13, the writer says, How long, O Lord? That is Yahweh, that covenant name. How long, O Yahweh? Psalm 77, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. I seek Yahweh. And we see that here too in verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, that capital Lord, Yahweh. In all three instances, these men are presupposing this covenantal relationship. They're not approaching God as a rebel. They're approaching him as a confused son. In all three instances, the person who is experiencing pain chooses to run to God with their questions. Israel did not do that. All Israel did was complain about God. They never took anything to God. Moses ran to God with all the things that were going on in his heart. It reminds me of this story that Tim Keller tells about he and his wife. I think it's in the book Meaning of Marriage, but, but Tim Keller, he's this really busy season of ministry, but he has to go to Kathy's hometown just to see her parents, and he really didn't want to go because he was so busy. But because he has to go, he really wants to go see this really cool little bookshop that he loves. But he knew down deep that Kathy didn't really want him to go because he's there to see Kathy's parents. And so he just, you know, bitterness just grew in his heart. I can't believe Kathy made me come. She knows that I'm busy and I can't believe she won't let me go to this bookstore. It's like the only joy I have. And like two days just ruined. Then Kathy finally says to Tim, what is wrong with you? I mean, you've been acting like a spoiled brat. I mean, what's going on? And, and Tim kind of shuffles his feet and says, you know, I just really wanted to go to this bookstore. Baby, why didn't you just ask me? I would have loved to say that you could have gone to that bookstore. Don't you know it blesses my heart to bless you? You never said anything. You just ruined the trip. And, of course, he repents with hat in hand. But it reminds me, that reminds me of how sometimes we can approach our relationship with God. Things happen in our life, things that don't match up with what God has told us, pains and sorrows and sufferings. And, and sometimes we, we just, we placate them with these theological platitudes. And we sweep them under a rug. And we imagine that, oh no, to be a, a man of faith, I can't think this way. But all that does is build bitterness. Faithlessness is not running to God. Faithfulness is running to God with whatever we have. We see that in the Psalms of Lament. We see that in this prayer of Moses, which leads us to the second element of lament. You and I can be honest with God. He doesn't make you clean yourself up. He doesn't make you wait until you get all the theological correct answers to come to him. He just wants you to come to him with whatever's on your mind, with whatever on your heart. You can be honest with your God. Just like you can be honest with your earthly father, you can be honest with your perfect Father in heaven. And again, we see this throughout the prayers of lament. Uh, Psalm 77, that example passage I gave you. Listen to some of the questions that Asaph asks. He goes, will the Lord spurn me forever? He uses that covenant name, will Yahweh, which again is presupposing this covenantal relationship. I am part of God's covenant community. I'm his child. Will Yahweh spurn me forever? Secondly, has his steadfast love ceased? Has my covenant God ceased his covenant love? That's what he's asking. Has, has promises come to an end for me forever? I mean, that is about as honest as you, as you can get. Moses' prayer here, if you say anything about this prayer, it's an honest one. There's a couple of things about these honest questions that you see in these prayers of lament. First off, they're not just groveling. 
They're not groveling questions. They're not bemoaning questions. It's not just crying and complaining. These prayers with honesty and humility are getting to the source of their pain. Right, so Asaph, he knew that God loved him. They were in a covenant relationship. But in that moment, for whatever was happening in his life, he did not feel loved. And so he brought that feeling to God. Moses here knew that God was the one that was leading them to the promised land. But again, he's the mediator. He is the leader. And he felt inadequate. And that depressed him. And so he's bringing his depression, his suffering, and his, and his, and his, his sources of pain to the Lord. He was honest with God. Which is so encouraging to me because, brothers, we are more than minds. We, we have mind, body, and soul. God gave us emotions, and God wants every bit of our personhood as his kids. He invites us to himself. The other thing that we learn from this, too, those questions, they were more self-reflective than anything. It's a little ironic. They call on the covenant name of God than wrestle with the covenant love of God, Right? I mean, it's not like they just gave him an arbitrary name like uh, Elohim, which is just God. Where's your love? They're saying, my covenant God who loves me, I'm not experiencing your love. And so essentially what they're saying is, I believe this is who you are. I believe your promises. I'm banking my life on it, but I'm not seeing you in my life. I know you're there, but I don't feel you. I don't experience you. Please help me to understand. It's essentially prayers like, I believe, but please help my unbelief. That's what's happening here. So again, some points of application for me. You know what this tells me? Is that God does not consider our limited minds and our inability to understand a liability in our relationship with him. Isn't that good to know? That you don't have to have everything figured out. God is a mystery. And in the governance of his Kingdom. There's going to be things that happen that we will not understand and cannot understand in this life, probably in the next two. But God gives us the language to wrestle with the things that we don't understand. Saying, God, I, I believe you and I love you, but I'm, but I'm having trouble to experience you. What you have promised does not seem to be lining up with what I'm seeing. Help me to understand. It's an amazing gift that God gives us that we can be honest with our Father in heaven. You don't have to be ashamed of those feelings. He wants you to come to him. Thirdly, we can boldly ask for God's help, which of course is what Moses does here, ultimately about provision and leadership. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Ron Sadlow, a lot of you know Ron Sadlow. He is one of my heroes in the faith, one of my great mentors. I love this man. He used to have a joke that he always felt pity for Moses in comparison to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was martyred and experienced shipwrecks and was beaten all the time. He goes, no, 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 Moses had it much harder. Because Paul, he would just plant a church and leave after an extended period of time. Moses was stuck with the same lousy people for 40 years. And I'm sure Moses experienced that. He's certainly experiencing that right here. Right? Because, God, God, I need your help. I can't deal with these people anymore. And so in desperation, he asked for God's help. And what does God do? Amazingly, he answers Moses' prayer, both with provision and leadership. He says, Moses, I hear you. Go get 70 men, and I'm going to give them my spirit for a spell to help you in shepherding and intercessing for these people. And because of that, Moses rejoiced. I mean, you could tell. His, he starts out depressed and, and scared, and he ends this whole ordeal with great joy in his heart, which is really a telltale sign of a good lament. 
It almost always ends with us dwelling on the steadfast love and provision of God, trusting God. Because remember, some of Moses' friends, some of the younger guys in faith came, Moses, these people are stealing your leadership. And Moses says, why are you complaining? Are you kidding me? I'm so excited for this. All, all that God's people would be filled with the Spirit. That was his prayer. And he rejoiced. So he asked for help. Don't forget to ask for help. Lastly, choose to trust the Lord. Now clearly, this is the less obvious element in Numbers 11. But I think it's there. Even if it's a mustard seed of faith, Moses is trusting the Lord. As annoyed as Moses was with God's people, as the mediator of God's covenant, we know that he loved God's people. He cared for God's people. His great desire was to see them inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. That was his great desire. But when you get to that last little bit, verse 15, when Moses sees his own wretchedness and asks to die. What is that about? I was struggling with that. I looked at the scholars and some of the commentaries, and they say that this isn't so much a plea or a, su or a suicidal moment as it was of a moment of realization for Moses that he was completely incapable of saving God's people. Because ultimately what they needed was to have the lusts of their heart satisfied. Because <laughs> that's what this text teaches. And Moses says, God, I can't do it. I mean, just let me die. I I'm too wretched of a man. I can't do this. And so implicitly what Moses is doing is he's not having any trust at all whatsoever in himself. And is trusting God. God, if this is going to be done, you're going to be the have to be the one to do it. For even a mustard seed of faith. Moses trusts God. So those are the elements of a, of a lament in faith. We turn to God. We're honest with God. We ask for God's help, and we trust in the Lord to answer. And I think all of those elements we can see in Numbers 11. <laughs> I mean, some folks say, no, no, Moses is grumbling too. But for the reasons that we just stated, in addition to, unlike Job, for example, in Job 38, God does not rebuke Moses here. And he even answers Moses' prayers. So I think this is a prayer that, uh, that pleases the Lord. But even still, elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly the Psalms of Lament, I want you to understand, brothers, that our God is an amazingly gracious God. That he gives you the language of lament. The language of lament is probably the most theologically informed action that you could do when your world turns upside down. This language that God gives you, it's a gift. Right? Because as believers, we know that God has the power to deliver, to make things new. I mean, for crying out loud, the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. We have faith in that. But we also know, too, that in this life, in this already not yet, we're going to experience pain and sorrow and seasons of confusion and not understanding how God is going to pull off these, these end-time promises. So God gives us this language, this language of lament, to help us deal with those things as we wait for the day that Christ comes and makes all things new. Anybody can grumble. Anybody can grumble. Only the Christian can lament because lament is a prayer of faith. Those are the two main things that we learn in seasons of hardship, in seasons of, as Memphians, where we're living right now as Christians, there's a lot of things that we can't explain or understand why are happening. 
in those moments, don't grumble. Rather, lament in faith. The last thing that we take away very quickly, brothers, what this passage ultimately does is it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we study the Old Testament in particular, we have to understand that not everything that we read (laughs) is a model for us to either emulate or to avoid. A lot of it is, but not all of it. Ultimately, what all of it does, particularly this passage, is is that it reminds us of the faithfulness of God that he has towards his faithless people. And brothers, as Christians, we have to understand too that just like Israel, we are often faithless, but we can take hope and rejoice because God is faithful to us still, even in our faithlessness. And he's ultimately faithful to us by sending us Jesus, the greater Moses. And that's what we see in almost every single verse of chapter 11. Jesus, after all, is the greater Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, look at it later, tells us that Moses, yes, was a faithful servant, but he was an imperfect saint. What we need is Jesus, who is described as the faithful high priest and the perfect son of God. And in God's faithfulness, that is who Jesus has sent. And just think about all of this. Jesus does not give up on us the rabble, after one, two, three, four, five, seven times of grumbling. He doesn't grow impatient with us. He doesn't get cranky with us. He doesn't forget to pray for us. On the contrary, he is continually at his Father's hand, intercessing for us, even in our weakness. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Furthermore, in John 6, after Jesus feeds the masses, and the disciples, just like Moses, say, how are we going to feed all these people? Jesus feeds them. And after he does that, in verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gives bread out of heaven, but it is my Father. My Father is the one who gives you the true bread. And what is the true bread that gives life, that satisfies all of our cravings? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so Jesus is telling us that he and he alone is the one who can satisfy the cravings of our heart. What Moses knew that we needed, but knew that he couldn't provide it, Jesus accomplishes for all those who trust in him. And we also see, too, that Jesus is the one that we can trust. In his active obedience for our sakes, he succeeded where we and Israel in the wilderness failed. Just see how this matches up. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, in the desert, where Satan tempted Jesus, Turn these breads into, or turn rather these stones into bread. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8:3. I will not do this, Satan, because man shall not live on bread alone, on manna alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus refused to put his cravings above the will of God. He succeeded where we failed. He obeyed for our sakes. Jesus did that as your representative. Because we are failures. And he lived the life that you and I could not live. And when we do sin, we can still have hope, right? Because Jesus, in his passive obedience, bore the curse of judgment for our sakes. Even lamenting on the cross, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that the reason that he laments that and quotes Psalm 22 is so that whoever has faith in him would never, ever have to ask that question. And he does all of that because he loves you. And if that isn't enough, in Jesus, that ultimate prayer of Moses has been fulfilled. 
or at Pentecost, after the ascension, that which Moses prayed all of God's people would enjoy, Jesus gives in His Spirit. The Spirit who, among other things, enables the people of God to pray. God in His faithfulness looks at us a rabble of people. And He sends the greater Moses, who lived the life that we could not live, who died the death we needed to die, who is continually praying for us even now, and gives us His Spirit so that we might pray to Him. And it's this gracious King, this gracious Savior, who invites us to Himself with whatever we got, including our complaints and our laments. And brothers, we have a whole lot to lament right now. I'm sure you have things to lament in your personal life, but as the church of God in Memphis, we have things to lament. Jesus says, come to me with all that you've got. Praise be to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this covenant relationship that you give us in the Lord Jesus, that we are your, we're so undeserving. But in your grace, you have brought us into the fold. And, and we praise your name for that. We also pray for the gift of prayer, this means of grace that you give us, that we might commune with you and be settled by you and be filled by you. And we pray that you would do that. Would you build us in faith and in trust so that we might be your men, a men after your own heart in our city. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.